Joining us now in the program, you can read his work at clutchpoints.com. And Clutch Sports is where Brett Siegel writes his work about the NBA, including his latest involving Buddy Heald and the Indiana Pacers. Uh, Brett, first off, good afternoon. How are you? Good. How are you guys doing today? No complaints whatsoever. Obviously, the big news in Indiana from earlier today is the fact that Tyrese Halliburton is going to miss at minimum the next three games after the training staff, according to Rick Carlisle, you know, wasn't necessarily happy with the way that his hamstring responded from playing in Portland. He did not play against Phoenix. He will not play in these three games this week. They will reassess it before Memphis on Sunday. But one of the guys that Tyrese Halliburton, of course, has become accustomed to playing with is Buddy Heald. And you had an interesting column yesterday about Buddy Heald and his prospective future with the Indiana Pacers. Elaborate if you could. Right, so after making the Pascal Siakam trade, the Pacers are open for business. This is a team in a front office that's looking to improve in any way that they can. They made it to the championship game of the in-season tournament. They see an opportunity to rise up in the Eastern Conference standings. And after going out and getting Siakam, the path to possibly getting a top-four seed or better in the Eastern Conference has presented itself. We've seen this team stack up against the East best. We've seen what they can do against the Milwaukee Bucks, which is why there's a real belief that they can be true contenders in the Eastern Conference. So with that being said, how can they improve this roster after getting Siakam and with Halliburton returning after his injury and he is dealing with that three-game absence now? But the hope is that he'll be good to go and be 100% afterwards. So what can you do to this roster to improve it at? improve it after the Siakam trade? And the answer is that they've made Buddy Heald, Jalen Smith, and Obi Toppin available in trade talks. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're actively looking to trade these guys. They're simply going out there on the market, and they're willing to talk with teams and see what upgrades are available for their roster. If they can get a solid, good player in return, potentially out on the wing is where they're really looking there is a chance that they can move Buddy Heald in that $19 million expiring contract. The same can be said for Obi Toppin, although they have really liked Obi Toppin's production at the power forward position this season before they got Siakam. Jalen Smith, to me, is an intriguing one because I think they really like Jalen Smith. I think when Indiana acquired him, uh, you know, Phoenix had basically said, like, look, we, we, we don't know what all is left there. Indiana really liked him in college at Maryland. So they decided to take that flyer, and I think Jalen Smith appreciated that, which is why he kind of came back on a hometown discount but on a one-year deal. Do you believe that there are other teams that would, I'm going to say, outbid Indiana for Jalen Smith on a long term, which would make his trade a desirable one for Indiana so that they don't lose him for nothing? I don't necessarily think so. I don't believe that there's going to be too big of a market for a guy like Jalen Smith, and he has played well for the Indiana Pacers. He has that player option for next season that he could opt out of to seek a bigger deal. But yeah, he's been a really good, productive player in the front court for the Pacers. And quite honestly, I think that this has been his best year in the league when you look at what he's done on the offensive end of the court. And you can see that just his understanding of the game is beginning to grow in Rick Carlisle's system. So I do think that he's a player that they'd like to keep long-term. Obviously, if the right trade comes their way and there's a player out there that can improve their roster and that's a salary that they would have to give up or, or a talent that they would have to give up for that matter from another team's perspective of them wanting Jalen Smith, I think that they would be willing to part ways with him. But in terms of being a secondary contributor, especially off the bench now with Siakam there, I definitely think that the upside Jalen Smith presents is something that the Pacers do value. 
Brett Siegel is our guest, covers the NBA for Clutch Points as an insider and reporter nationally. Brett, Buddy Heald has been attached to rumor mills ever since he arrived here in Indiana. And the last couple of seasons, you'd lump Miles Turner in there and it was, oh, the Lakers are interested or a contender is interested. When you look at Buddy Heald in the 2023-2024 season, does Buddy Heald still carry the same value and interest towards contending teams that he did say a season or two ago? I think so, and I think it's for two reasons. One, because he's still the same three-point shooter that we've seen through the years. Buddy Heald, a high-volume three-point guy. You know what you're getting with him, and it's not like he's going to go to another team and all of a sudden either blossom or regress as a scorer. He's going to be out on the wing. He's going to be a 40% three-point shooter. He's going to be amongst the league leaders in three points made. So that's what any team that would potentially trade for Buddy Heald, that's what they would be doing is getting a three-point guy, a catch-and-shoot guy that they can rely on either in their starting lineup or as a six-man potentially. Now, the second reasoning is his contract. I think that he may be a little bit more lucrative this season simply because he has that $19 million expiring deal. Could be a deal that playoff contending teams like simply because of the second apron coming into effect next offseason. And then, obviously, that $20 million that frees up in cap space could be very valuable to multiple teams around the league, including the Pacers, heading into the offseason if they wind up keeping him. I and mean, there's multiple things that they could do there, especially with Siakam being in the final year of his contract and a potential long-term deal being on the horizon there worth upwards of $40-plus million per year. So I, I think that when you look at Buddy Heal, both from the Pacers' perspective and other teams' perspective, they're going to be taking in that $19 million contract with the mindset that it's an expiring deal that they could use to allocate funds elsewhere. Brett Siegel, our guest, Clutch Sports, his outlet, talking about Buddy Heald. Uh, Brett, in terms of Buddy Heald, Obi Toppin, Jalen Smith being open for business, basically, being on the Pacers, putting them on Craigslist, do you believe, like, in other words, are you hearing that definitively from Indiana or from what other teams are telling you that Indiana has extended to them as an overture? It's a little bit of both. And from the Pacers' perspective, it's more of what what is still out there on the trade market that could really improve our roster at this point. We know that they wanted a power forward. They got that with Pascal Siakam. Now the next step is finding that secondary talent that can really push this team over the edge. We've seen what they've been able to do offensively. They have plenty of firepower there. Even if they were able to move a guy like Buddy Heald, if they were to get off of a guy like Obi Toppin, you still have a lot of firepower, especially with Siakam's arrival. So from the Pacers' perspective, if there's another guy out there that they truly do believe can come in, be their number three guy, and make a difference in terms of this team improving from a playoff contending possibly even a championship contending standpoint, they are comfortable making that trade. From an outside team's perspective, they've heard that the Pacers are willing to talk about these guys, and it's more of not necessarily offering them up to teams and saying, hey, we'll give you Buddy Heald and Obi Top and X, Y, and Z for this player. It's more like, who's available on your team? Would you be willing to discuss a trade package surrounding Top? Would you be willing to, to discuss a trade package surrounding Heald? So I think it's just more of the Pacers doing their due diligence at this point than actually being seriously interested in orchestrating another blockbuster trade. It's just one of those scenarios around the trade deadline that we see with a lot of teams where they set prices on their players and they're willing to see how much a team's willing to pay for said player. If they're willing to exceed that asking price and they're willing to give up a lot for that player and there's a lot of value that can come back in return, maybe it's worth exploring that avenue. I totally agree on Obi Toppin, by the way, that I think you know he's one that probably is always fluid. 
Um, and because of the fact that Heald did not accept the reported extension, I, I think you have to assume that that is also in fair play. I'll respectfully disagree a little bit on Jalen Smith in terms of their, their willingness, although certainly if somebody came along and said, look, we'll trade you Carl Anthony Towns for Jalen Smith, you know, I mean, I get it, right? Um, but that said, Brett, in your opinion, give me a player, I'm not saying definitive by name to be held to, but the kind of player in terms of, of level of talent you're talking about that you think could be yielded by surrendering Buddy Heald. Right. So I, I don't think that this is a realistic scenario. I, I just don't see this team giving him up at this point, given the value that they put on him. But I think that if you're going to give up a guy like Buddy Heald, you have to try to get a talent like Kyle Kuzma in return, where he's a secondary contributor, a secondary playmaker, and a guy that can take pressure off of Halliburton and Siakam, who, when they're on the bench, you can count on a guy like Kuzma. You can't necessarily say that about Buddy Heald right now, other than his scoring abilities. Buddy Heald is kind of a, a one-dimensional player in terms of what he gives your team. You look at guys like Kuzma, you look at guys uh, around the league, even a player, and he's not going to fit in with the Pacers, just using this as an example of a, a playmaker that you would potentially target and this kind of skill level. A guy like DeJounte Murray, who various teams around the league are targeting, again, not saying he's somebody that the Pacers want or should target, just that kind of skill level. If you're going to go out and trade Buddy Heald, a guy that's on a $20 million contract, you want to try to get a talented player like that in return where he can come in, fill a key need, and really be of value to this franchise, not only in the short term in their playoff pursuit, but also long term. So I, I think that's kind of where the Pacers would be looking at. But obviously you have to take into consideration the fact that Pascal Siakam's in the final year of his contract. You're going to be paying him long-term potentially. So do you really want to take on another long-term contract like Kyle Kuzma's or somebody else around the league that you may be targeting? And those are the discussions that are currently ongoing in the front office. NBA insider for Clutch Points, Brett Siegel, is our guest. Brett, with the NBA trade deadline occurring before NBA All-Star Weekend this year, and that's the way the league is shifting things moving forward, in terms of conversations, rumors, discussions from agents, all that good stuff, in terms of the state of the league, how is the trade deadline occurring before All-Star Weekend impacting trade dialogue and teams' willingness to pursue trades? Yeah, I think it's kind of the same, to be honest with you, compared to last season and, and years past. I think that when you have it before the All-Star break, and especially with all the new, I guess, bonuses, you can say, that have been added to the league with the in-season tournament and the playing tournament over the last few years, I think it's creative incentive for teams to go out and be more aggressive on the trade front. And we've seen it kind of progress this year where – the Charlotte Hornets are selling, the Washington Wizards are selling, but other than that, there's truly no sellers on the tree block, whereas in past years, there's been five, six, maybe seven teams that go out and say, hey, we'll be willing to take on larger contracts if you're giving us draft picks, and we're willing to give up some of our guys to get some future value. So I don't think we're seeing as much of that this year, and I think that's good for the league, especially before the All-Star break, because you see a guy like Siakam, who is an All-Star, on the move to the Pacers. You see a guy like Terry Rozier, who's not an All-Star talent, but a guy averaging 20 points per game he's on the move to the Miami to the Miami Heat and all of a sudden they could go on a hot streak no pun intended before they all start break there so I think that it's definitely good for the league and I think that the movement of big name players being on the move I think that that definitely uh, impacts the league in a positive way from a fan perspective here's one that a guy that had been mentioned on this show a couple weeks ago 
and the Siakam deal probably negates this guy, but I'm curious from your standpoint, Brett, or even if you know, Brett Siegel, why this guy's game has dropped so significantly uh, and, and if he's even still like available or getting overtures. What, what's happened with Andrew Wiggins, who I think is a good defender and a good size, but man, it seems like his game has just fallen off a cliff. Right, and, and that's been a big storyline for the Golden State Warriors this season is, and even last season when he came back from his personal matters is, where's Andrew Wiggins? This is not the same guy that they had during their 2022 championship run, the guy that was arguably their best rebounder next to Kaval Mooney during that championship run, a two-way presence. He was an all-star, one of the best three-point shooters from the corner at one point, and now he's a guy that's getting paid $24 million this season. He's just taking up space, averaging 11, 12 points per game, and He's even been utilized off the bench at times by Steve Kerr. So what's what's going on with Andrew Wiggins, really? It, it's kind of a question of what's going on with the Warriors at this point because we know all the drama that they've been dealing with and obviously the passing of one of their assistant coaches, that's kind of kept them on the low over the past week in terms of the trade deadline. Not much has been said about the Warriors. Their front office hasn't really been doing much and it, a lot of the focus has been on the team's mental health and getting through this tough time and being able to get back out on the court. So as it pertains to the Warriors, with the trade deadline, things are very quiet after the Pascal Siakam deal. They were involved in some trade chatter with the Raptors. They were willing to take on Siakam without any long-term assurance that he would be there past this season. Ultimately, the Raptors chose the Pacers package, and now the Warriors are just kind of left in this purgatory state of you don't really know what they're going to be able to deal at this point because you have Chris Paul. He's injured on that big contract, maybe a contract that other teams would be willing to take on, seeing as they can easily get off at $30 million. But what value does that really present to them? Andrew Wiggins, again, a big contract, hasn't produced this season. Does he really hold much value on the trade block? And if the Warriors aren't going to get a lot in return, would they even be willing to deal him at this point, knowing that he was an instrumental part of their championship roster just a few seasons ago? So to, to answer your question the best I can, Andrew Wiggins, to my knowledge, I do believe that they're going to be holding on to him, although it has looked likely in past weeks that they were going to move on from him. That was just more in connection to the Pascal Siakam trade talks. Right now, it just doesn't seem like that there is that moving player, that number one guy out there that the Warriors could move Wiggins for and be in a better spot long-term at this point. Hey, Brett, for people that are not familiar with it in Indiana because they didn't watch a lot of the Raptors and they have not seen a lot just as of yet with Indiana, uh, tell me about Siakam. How good is he? What kind of guy and player is Indiana getting? Well, when he was with the Raptors, they, they gave him a lot of responsibilities. Not only was he their number one scorer, but he could create both in the perimeter and in the low post. He's a guy that was one of their main facilitators before they got Scotty Barnes. And during their championship run, when they took down the Golden State Warriors, when Siakam really emerged as an all-NBA and all-star talent, he was their do-it-all guy from rebounding to assists to defense even. He, he was playing at an all-defensive level that season. So I think that they're getting really one of the more underrated two-way big men in this league. I think that Siakam can guard one through five. I think that on offense, he's going to take a lot of pressure off of Tyrese Halliburton to always have to be the facilitator, always have to be the playmaker for this team. And obviously, from a scoring perspective, when you join the number one team in the league that has more possessions per game than the Raptors, I mean, the Raptors were a really slow-paced playing team. Now you join a fast-paced uh, a team that likes to get shots up. I think that we're only going to see Siakam's scoring numbers go up from here. So through two games, them being 0-2, and, and Siakam maybe struggling a little bit with his shot, I wouldn't be too concerned with that. I think that Pascal Siakam is going to fit in really well here. And that as time goes on alongside Tyrese Halliburton, he's really going to thrive as the all-star talent that he is. 
NBA insider with Clutch Points, Brett Siegel, is our guest. Brett, the trade deadline is two weeks from Thursday. As it stands, what you've heard, what you're reporting, do you envision that Pascal Siakam is the biggest name moved between now and the deadline? That's a good question. And uh, to, to be perfectly honest, I would say yes as of right now. But it really depends on, A, how how much you compare him to guys like DeJounte Murray and Terry Rozier. And then also, you always have that if factor. I mean, last year, there was talk of Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving being on the move, but we never really believed it until we saw that Kevin Durant was traded. I mean, you don't see a player like that get moved very often. So could there be another big all-star, another big name on the move? Sure. I think that you could see Zach Levine. I think you could see DeMar DeRozan possibly traded from the Chicago Bulls. Will it happen? Probably not, but it's always a possibility. And then you have rumors like Lori Marketed. The Jazz aren't willing to give him up. But you never know. Maybe a team comes at them with a Rudy Gobert package that they just can't turn down. So there's definitely big names that can be on the move out there. But as far as all-star goes, as far as proven talent goes, I do think that this trade deadline with Siakam, I think that he was the biggest name available. Hey, Brett, I I said earlier that I think the Philadelphia 76ers missed a brilliant marketing opportunity. Um, And I'm hoping because you're a basketball mind, you'll agree with me here. Last night, Joel Embiid goes for 70, franchise record. They had to leave him in and just leave him at the three-point line and let him keep chucking him up until he got 76 so that the franchise (laughs) record would be 76 points, right? It's in the middle of the floor. It's on the jersey. This is a no-brainer, is it not? You got my back here? Yeah, I, I think that would have been great. You could have had a, some kind of customized logo for your jersey. That totally. You next game with exactly. Cheating. So, yeah, I think that would have been great. But I mean, just seeing a guy score 70 points, I had a double take when I saw that. At first, I, I didn't actually believe that he had 70 points there. But when you look at it, it it's not that surprising that Embiid is the, the ninth guy in NBA history to score 70, especially when he's acting around 35 points per game and on pace for another MVP award. So just a a masterful performance by him and probably not the last big performance that we're going to see from him this season. You think 162 points is an NBA record for most combined amongst the top two scorers in a given night? I honestly don't know if it is. Is it it actually the the most points scored? Uh, Not not 162, I'm sorry. Um, 132, I mean. 70 and 62, 132. So I was thinking of Wilt Chamberlain's 100-point game. I don't know if anybody had 32 in that same night or 33 in that same night, or if the night Kobe had 81, did anybody have 52? 132 has got to be the record for two guys in one night, right? I would, think, I would think so. I would think that that's definitely up there. If not, then you'd have to probably look at the night that Will had 100 and see who else around the league. So I mean, well, but back that, then, that back then final scores time, though were like 40 to 35, right? I mean, nobody had 32. Right. <laughs> See, Brett, here's the thing. This is the kind of stuff – I'm an insomniac, and this is the kind of stuff at like 3.30 in the morning that hits you that you start thinking about. People think I'm wacky on the gummies. It's not that at all. I just like – this is what happens, right? I'm just telling you. Hey, true basketball fans, that that goes into their mind at night. Sometimes you (laughs) you just wake up in cold sweats wondering what the next trade at the trade deadline is going to be, right? exactly right. That's exactly right. Brett, appreciate the time as always, um, and I know you've got a couple of articles up right now that include the Pacers and breaking down – uh, what it means just in terms of Siakam and their competitiveness within the Eastern Conference. Appreciate the time and perspective today. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me. Take Brett, it easy. Appreciate it. Brett Siegel joining us on the program. Joining us on the program now, Brian Newbert, goldenblack.com, friend of the show, Purdue in Michigan tonight, 9 o'clock tip. And Brian, I'm going to begin with this. I was just talking about Zach Eady, and you know, I'm hearing more and more that the combination of, and I mean this is no disrespect to 
Zach Eady. But the combination of this being a down draft year and the fact that people are now realizing that Zach Eady would be a safe draft pick, you know, a guy that you know you got a pretty good idea what you're getting and a guy that could play 10 years in the league and he's a safe pick, that for that reason he may find his way into the top 20 or 15 in this year's draft. And I'm curious from what you know, Brian, and seeing Purdue in practice and other such things, does he have a little more range to his game that is not needed at Purdue, but that he could showcase a little bit in the process going into the league? Yeah, if you've seen him shoot around uh, after practice, you can see that he can shoot jumpers. It's just not the most logical thing for Purdue to do when you have this guy with this unbelievable advantage around the rim. But you can tell from his free throw form, too, that he's got great touch and he's got great uh, great shooting skills, great hand-eye coordination, stuff like that. That maybe is something that he can show people in the pre-draft process whenever that time comes. I don't think that's new. I think he would have done that last year, too. Um, but that's something maybe some, some NBA people down the line can explore. Outside of that, he's just gotten a lot better. He's gotten a lot more mobile. Uh, he's gotten a lot better defensively. He's he's become a much better passer, um, you know, things like that. He's become a really good defensive player, a better rim protector than he was earlier in, in the season. He's one of the best rebounders in the country. Rebounding typically translates from one level to the next. He's really played well in pick and roll, which obviously at the NBA level is a pretty big deal. Uh, I, I think he's shown people he's got a little more there than uh, people would expect from a seven-foot four. 300 pound guy um i've always said about him as an nba prospect is that don't draft him as a 21 year old draft him as a guy who's played basketball for seven years you know it's 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 kind of a an interesting combination between a guy who's played enough college basketball now to be ready to maybe help a good team as a late first round draft pick and somebody who should still have some remaining upside so he has really helped himself here by coming back this year and that's uh you know, something there's a certain stigma kind of attached to guys who come back for their senior years and things like that. And I know people who are not Purdue fans or, or, or dislike Purdue or, or are jealous or whatever like to throw out the whole, oh, he's not going to play in the NBA stuff uh, the same way a lot of Purdue people did about Trace Jackson Davis, and they were wrong. But um, I think he definitely has – a professional basketball future, whether that's at the N- in the NBA level or it's something he has to kind of work at, work his way up towards. I think he's really helped himself this year. With Zach Eady, the last three games and sticking just on the college profile, not what we just asked, of course, with where he mocks to be in the NBA if he goes to the next level. But ninety three points, fifty two rebounds, thirty one free throws over his last three. I'm sure, you've seen this from Purdue Sports, only major college player to reach those marks in a three game span. The last twenty five years. What is left to expect from Zach Eady on a nightly basis when he makes those things that define a all-elite-level big man seem easy? What, what is left to expect from him on a nightly basis? Well, I think, I think the big thing for him is winning this year. Uh, I think he's proven himself to be you know, a great college player, the best college player in the country. I think uh, you know his margins for productivity are pretty slim at this point when you know he he's putting up the sort of numbers he always puts up. Um, I think he's ultimately going to be judged on what Purdue does as a team. And that's sort of the, sort of the story of Purdue season. And I genuinely think he means it when he says, 
a big part of the reason he came back was that. I think he was not particularly happy with the way last season ended, nor should he have been, nor was anyone else at Purdue. Um, but uh, I think that's kind of his focus, and ultimately I think that's kind of what defines what will be his last season at Purdue. Brian, in the last 35 years, more dominant Purdue basketball players, Zach Eady, Glenn Robinson, go. Uh, well, I was in high school when Glenn Robinson was at Purdue, so uh, I, I can't really speak to him from a firsthand perspective. But I know of his reputation. I, I watched a couple games on TV when I was a kid. Uh, I'm dating myself there, but um, I can't imagine there being uh, anything more dominant than Zach Eady. It's just there's just this baseline of productivity with him where it's just so suffocating to opponents. What he does on the offensive glass, the physical toll he takes on people, the fouls he pins on people, the fact that he just he makes his free throws when he shoots 15 of them a game, you know, stuff like that. It, it's got to be the most hopeless matchup I've ever seen as a college basketball um, observer. Uh, I never saw Shaq play college basketball or anything like that, but I would imagine – uh, it was something kind of along those lines. Glenn Robinson was an unbelievable player, obviously one of the greatest players probably to ever play college basketball. Um, but I, I, I just think the sheer impossibility of matching up with Zach Eady probably uh, takes even more of a toll on people than just simply the rebounding and the scoring and the, and the block shots and things like that. So um, I would have to say Zach Eady, I guess. By the way, on a total side note, Buddy of mine played college basketball, played against Purdue, knew Glenn from AAU ball, and they're warming up before the game, and Glenn comes walking up to him, and they were AAU teammates. So he's like, oh, Glenn. Like, you know, thought it was cool that Glenn Robinson's coming up to say hi, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Glenn Robinson walks up to him and goes, hey, man, just so you know, you're going to tell your grandkids about the butt kicking I'm about to lay on you. And I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> but, like, he had just an intimidation factor about him that was yeah. just so, yeah. like, whoa, like, just, you know, just, he had such a... He was such a dog, man. I mean, that dude was – he was something. But yeah. listen, let me ask you, Brian. Brian Newbert, our guest, and you're totally right about about Edie. You know, Purdue's game goes – starts with Edie and goes inside out, right? And yeah. I don't know that now you're going to have nights where Zach Edie has an off night. But if you do, I thought last year some of the areas where Purdue would stumble would be – if all of a sudden things got off kilter outside of that, they kind of didn't know how to rebound or which way to go with it. Do you think mm-hmm. Purdue now has a definitive offensive pecking order where it is very clear to them so that, like, in other words, it's not guys standing around waiting for one thing to happen, that everybody, that there's more fluidity to it? Does it feel that that is more the case than a year ago? Yeah, kind of going back to the Glenn Robinson comparison, I think they were very different players, uh, obviously they go about their business very differently. But I think also, you know, Glenn was in a situation where he, he carried that team. He was the, the guy, whereas Purdue now has built an infrastructure around Zach Eady where you've got shooters who are making shots this year, and that was, that, was, that was the big issue last year. You've got a point guard who can now really, really unlock a lot of what Zach Eady does too uh, in pick-and-roll offense, things like that. I think – the biggest thing for Purdue coming into the season, and this has changed kind of through the course of this season because the turnovers are, are the thing Purdue's got to get under control. They've got to make sure every game that's not something that goes sideways on them. But coming into this season, the biggest key to Purdue's success 
was making shots. I know that sounds like oversimplification, but that is so important to guiding how people defend Zach Eady to really, really leveraging what Zach Eady does, giving him the space he needs, things like that. And Purdue shot the ball great this year. I think that probably could have been expected uh, given that, um, you know, those two sophomore guards have more experience this year, you know, things like that. Uh, But that's been the biggest difference from last year to this year from an offensive perspective. I think Fletcher Lawyer has been a much better player this year than he was last year. He was pretty good last year. Um, Obviously, Braden Smith's taken a jump from being really good as a freshman to a borderline All-American. You know, he's he's um, he's handing out nine assists down there every game. And over the 20 years prior to this one that I've covered Purdue, I can probably count the number of nine assist games I've seen uh, on two hands. Uh, there haven't been very many of them. Uh, and he's just doing it every game. And it's kind of one of those things you sort of take for granted. Like, he's just having this, this season where – uh, it's not like anything that really Purdue's used to seeing. Uh, you know, you've got scoring options at the floor now. Trey Kaufman-Renz in there for a reason uh, to try to get some high-low stuff going with Ed. You know, Mason Gillis makes shots. Um, you've got some opportunistic shooters, too. I just think Purdue's got a great offensive infrastructure around Ed, but also one that has not um, – does not lose sight of the fact that the ball needs to go inside to number 15. And uh, I think that's probably the most important part of it. I didn't mention Lance Jones. What he's given them in transition has really, really completed this team too, among many other things he's given them. So this is the most complete uh, offensive arsenal I think Purdue's had uh, in its modern era. And I think that they've had some pretty good ones. You know, there's a year with Caleb Swanigan, Vince Edwards, and Dakota Mathias and all those guys. And those were some really good offensive teams. I just think this team kind of has it all right now. Ryan Newbert covers all things Purdue for goldenblack.com, joins us. Last three all wins, 88 points a game, 49% from the field. And you mentioned the key one, making shots, 39% from beyond the arc. That's all since that, lo- that's all since that loss to Nebraska. What's changed over that stretch, if anything, in your mind, or are they just back on script to where they wanted to be to start the year? Well, I don't think anything went off script. I think they just got kind of buzzsawed on the road, as tends to happen to people sometimes in the Big Ten when you leave your home arena. Tominaga did what what Tominaga does for Nebraska, just made a bunch of impossible threes. Um, And uh, they shot out of their minds. And uh, I think that... um, you just have to kind of bake that into a Big Ten season every now and then happen every couple of games, uh, something like that. But I, Is that the way to I beat think, them now then, Brian? In terms of, you mentioned they got to make shots. They're clearly a better shooting team than they were a year ago. If they shoot like they have, if they play like they're capable of, is the only way to for them to miss out on what they want to do this year, which is make a Final Four, win a national championship, is the formula outshoot them, outscore them, but you're going to have to match what they do offensively? Well, yeah, you're going to have to score a lot of points, but you're also going to have to turn them over. Uh, I think the one thing that directly correlates, you know, to Purdue not having success is turnovers. And sometimes it it, it snowballs on them a little bit. The two games they lost uh, at Northwestern in double overtime, I think it was double overtime, and then at Nebraska was both of those teams shot really well, but also Purdue. Uh, you know, turn the ball over more than it would have liked, but also the, the turnovers were really impactful turnovers. I think, 
I, I can't remember which one's which, but I think it was one of those games had 20 points off turnovers for the opponent. The other one had 19, and I think Purdue's a better defensive team than they were a year ago. They're an okay defensive team. They're not a great defensive team, but when they're getting 20 points off your mistakes, um, that's that takes them from good defensive team to very mediocre defensive team. And if you just cut that number in half, it's going to be really, really hard to outscore Purdue. Um, so I think the turnovers are still the biggest thing Purdue's got to got to be constantly aware of. And because it's going to be consistent scoring the ball, it's too good an offensive team not to. They're always going to have an advantage on the glass. They're going to get back a lot of their misses because they're a dominant offensive rebounding team. They should have an advantage at the foul line. It's just a matter of not giving offense to their opponents. And uh, that's kind of the, the one thing that is really, really correlated with the games they've lost this season and the games they've struggled in, uh, which there haven't been very many of them, but going back to like Honolulu, you know, things like that. So the turnovers are kind of the biggest thing, if you ask me. Hey, Brian, can you give me a, um, and by no means, you know, a lot can change between now and nine o'clock, don't get me wrong, but, you know, for people here, we heard a lot yesterday about the fact that there could be some freezing rain and almost like an ice storm north of here. Uh, I had to go up to the Frankfurt area earlier today, and it was okay then. It was mostly rain. But for people that might be coming up from the Indy area that are listening and are going to be coming to Purdue tonight, uh, taking on Michigan, what is how are things looking right now up in Lafayette? Uh, the freezing rain hit last night. It's all melted. It's just wet now here. Uh, I can't speak to the whole county. I have just driven um, kind of around the area around my house, but it's all just wet. The roads... The main roads seem fine. I can't speak to the back roads, but right. um, I don't know if there's more freezing rain coming tonight. I certainly hope not, um, but uh, I haven't checked the forecast either. But right now it's just wet, uh, at least in terms of the main thoroughfares through town and things like that. So I don't think there's anything you'd be concerned about right now. You know, as we know, in Indiana this time of year, things can change real quick. Totally, yeah, uh, especially up there, I right? I mean, yep. Right. Uh, so just kind of wet right now. Brian Newbert, goldenblack.com. Appreciate it as always, man. And we will be looking to see what you have in terms of your coverage after tonight's battle, Michigan and Purdue up in West Lap. Yeah, appreciate it, man. All right, fellas. Thanks for having me. All right, Brian Newbert again, goldenblack.com. That game on Peacock tonight, right? That is correct. Noah Eagle, Robbie Hummel on Peacock. There it is, baby. The 1988 DJ Mix Tunes of ConCan. Taking Stephen Holder back to the night that he sat and enjoyed too short at the Vogue with yours truly. He joins us now in the program. Stephen, how are you? I'm doing well. Good times. Good times. Yes. One of the worst concerts I've ever been to, truth be told, but it was fun, right? <laughs> the idea was fun, right? <laughs> it was. Hey, um, I, so, hey, by the way, I in, in keeping with our, our tradition of, of recent weeks, I caught a, a portion of the show earlier, and I, as I always do, I catch the tail end of conversation, so I never know what the hell you guys are talking about, mm-hmm, yeah. but uh, I'm always intrigued. Now, is your radio broken? Is that how you keep stumbling upon us, by the way? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's supposed to it's supposed to have all this technology stuff, and I don't know how to connect, you know, this old That's telephone. That's right. <laughs> no, I, you know what, listen, you guys, you put the, the YouTube link on Twitter and I sit at this computer all day and like every 20 minutes I get bored of what the hell I'm doing and I just have to like get off of what I've been working on and, and scroll. 
So I, I scrolled and I was like, ah, let me see what they're talking about. I saw the link and, and I heard the jury duty conversation. So anyway, that was, that was, I was, I was intrigued. Let's put it that way. So allow me to ask you this, cause I was actually going to ask you this. Have you been Stephen Holder selected for jury duty? I have in fact, and it was very strange. This was, it was a very long time ago. I would say almost like 20 years ago since I've actually done it. And I remember kind of trying to get out of it, like not, not with like a lie, but you asked that question. Like if you're a member of the media, do they just say, I right, get out of here? Well, I can attest they do not <laughs> because I tried that. And so I tried to give them the, the whole line. Well, you know, in my line of work, I deal with lots of attorneys and I deal with, you know, court proceedings all the time, which is true. And they were like, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, whatever, get in line. <laughs> and it, when they were doing the jury selection, it, it didn't even phase them one bit. So did you, um, get, did you actually serve on a – I mean, you got picked for a jury? I got picked. I got picked for the jury. So um, it was – and here, it was a civil trial, though, not a criminal trial, let me be clear. Um, and, and I will tell you, I, as we're sitting there, I think it was a two- or three-day trial. And as I'm sitting through the proceedings and listening to the testimony – what I, I knew the, the concept was it was, I believe, an insurance company versus um, a medical provider. They were fighting over like a bill or something. And throughout this this case, you know, me and the other jurors, we're thinking, OK, this has got to be like hundreds of thousands of dollars because they never tell you they never dealt with like the amount of money we were talking about until the very end. And then they dropped it on us. And it was the most minute ridiculous, <laughs> petty amount of money. I was like, you wasted three days of my life for this nonsense. So in other words, you got you got paid more than actually the winner of the trial for being on the jury duty, right? Well, by the time they paid the attorneys, I, I have to wonder. And so ultimately, I wondered why they did that, right? Why would you go to court and fight this and principle, go through all this principle. trouble? Yes, it was, it was principle and precedent. There were probably other other claims that they were fighting over, you know, so I, I didn't realize it at the time, but you know, in retrospect, I think that's what it was. So anyway, um, yeah, that's what you have to look forward now, to. Now here's the other thing. And I want to know if this will eliminate me. I'll agree to be on a jury, but I have to be the four person. I, I, it, like, <laughs> right. Oh, well, listen, that's a great point because I'm, I'm going to tell you, our four person was a complete moron. Okay. <laughs> and, all the more reason I'm qualified. Well, <laughs> No, you you actually are very thoughtful and 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 analytical, probably too much so, but whatever. Uh, and you need someone who can actually like put a sentence together because I don't want to be there all day, man. Like we get in the room, and and frankly, we all kind of agreed. And there was this, there was a couple people who were like, "Well, I don't know," and the poor person like couldn't get control of this to the point where I was like, "All right, look, this is what we're gonna do," <laughs> and I'm like. Two of us, me and another person, kind of like usurped the power right, from the right. poor person. Well, the see, that, then, then in that idiot. case, here's the thing: you ain't serving on my jury because <laughs> we're going to arm wrestle over this, and I'm not. No, I'm the four person. You have a seat. That, you know, that's how it's going to be, right? Anyway, I mean, it, it must look good on a resume, right? Jury four person. <laughs> yes. you, you, it's got to count for something. I have more embellished things on my resume. I can assure you. I see you more as bailiff query. I would now like that, to see that role. I, I'd be fine with that too. You know. Again, Todd Meyer. 
Uh, okay, Stephen Holder. One, one quick thing, though. Yep. Last thing, because I know no one cares about this, but um, I, had a, I had an editor, my editor once back in the day, he got called for a, a federal trial and got picked for a drug trafficking case that lasted four months. Whoa. Okay? Four months. So, yeah. Yeah, so do you, get, do you get sequestered at that point? No, no. He, he actually would come to work in the evenings and, oh, and like, man. you know, he'd come in the newsroom like at five o'clock and work for like four hours because he was, he was like, I got, I got stuff to do. <laughs> so, yeah, that's rough, was, man. That's rough. Crazy. Hey, yeah. um, Stephen, let's begin with this. And I know you were on with John yesterday, and, and I can't imagine that, that things have changed, but mm-hmm. I do want to address it for those that may not have heard yesterday, you know, obviously we know that, that Jim Mersey has, you know, we haven't seen or heard from him since mid-December and the Colts have let it known that he is battling a respiratory illness. Uh, is there any update on the owner of the Colts? There is not. Um, that's the last uh, concrete statement or indication we've gotten. Um, the one thing I would say is I was trying to put this together in my head. I think the the last time we we have some indication of, of Jim Ursay's well being uh was was that Pittsburgh Steelers game, which I think was what, the December eighteenth? Uh, Sixteenth or eighteenth. Yeah. I believe, yes. And so and and so when whenever this latest medical episode happened, I'm not sure of the exact date, but I know it was not it was not uh, when the Colts put the original statement out. It had happened uh, quite a bit earlier than that is what I'm saying. So what's the point? What I'm saying is he's been in this concerning state for, for quite some time. And that is what, that's what doesn't sit well with me. You know, the longer this goes on without some sign of, of, optimism or or good news you would hope you would hear some good news if there was um the longer we go without that the more i think my level of concern goes up so all we can do is just wait and and hope for the best here steven also for those that may not be aware can you kind of take us through steven holder espn.com when the season ends you know, we, we obviously know that the the season from an nfl standpoint continues but for the team itself what does take place? Like, what have the last couple of weeks looked like? And, and what is the next kind of order of business? If you are a player for the Colts, you are in the facility, when, how often, when, you know, or is it literally everybody cleans their locker out and it's like, okay, see you in three months. What does the process right now look like? Yeah, so for the players, you've got exit interviews. Uh, depending on, on how the team structures theirs, you know, that can be a couple days worth or it can be all that, you know, that one Monday after the season. It, it just kind of depends on the team. I, I think Shane Steichen was trying to meet with everyone on that Monday. Um, but then, you know, Chris Ballard, <clears throat> excuse me, sometimes meets with guys individually. So anyway, let's say a period of two or three days, they knock all that out. Then they scatter. They're gone. Um, you know, some guys live in far flung places, so they go home to their hometowns. Uh, some guys are here, but they're all for the most part laying pretty low. You can 
if you're local, you can come in and, and use the facility to work out and, and do those kinds of things. But generally, there's nothing in the way of, of coaching, uh, instruction, and, and that kind of thing happening once your season ends. In fact, that's, that's not really even permitted. So uh, for the coaches, it's an opportunity to, to kind of take a step back and, and do evaluation. So, you know, just like all of us, get evaluated at, at our jobs you know, on an annual basis. It's the same thing. They're doing reports on players. Uh, it's kind of a, a reverse scouting report. You know, how did the player perform as opposed to, you know, how, how do we like this player we might sign or draft? It, it, this is the reverse. You're looking back at the player, how he performed, did he grow, et cetera. Uh, what's next? What are, the, what are the expectations for that player moving forward? All of that's being evaluated uh, and that's on the position coaches. That's a process that they may in fact still be going through. So, um, yeah, it, it's actually, you know, it, it's an important time. And then, and then pretty soon here, uh, I don't have the dates in front of me. I think the senior bowl might be next week, I think. So that's the next order of business coming up as well. Stephen Holder joins us, covers the Colts nationally for ESPN. Stephen, we are just under a month away from that, what, three, four-week window where clubs may designate a franchise tag onto a player. I know that we're probably still a little bit too early in terms of what stages, conversations, when those conversations begin with Michael Pittman Jr., and there's maybe other options if they wanted to use the tag as well with how many expiring contracts they have. How quickly, from when that starts on February 20th to when it ends on March 5th, if they were to use it, do you expect the Colts to act with a tag regardless who the player is? Yeah, I well, I think we'd have to start with with Michael Pittman Jr. Obviously, and right. I, I think here's what you can count on. You know, we don't know what exactly what conversations specifically have taken place, but here's what you can count on: the Colts have been game planning this for months, <laughs> probably more than that. Frankly, going back more than a year, they've been game planning because that's what good teams do. You know, it's it's kind of like, you know, planning to send your kids to college, right? You, you don't get to three weeks before graduation and you're like, you know, honey, we got to come up with some money, right? You know, <laughs> so it's the same thing. They've been game planning this for a while and they have, I'm, I'm sure they have, I know how they work. I know how Chris Ballard and his staff work. They have uh, discussed different types of structures for that contract, you know, lengths, all of that has been has been talked about ad nauseum already. I assure you, I have no doubt. Some of it may have already even been discussed with Pittman's representation. Now, Pittman told us recently uh, that he he decided. Actually, both sides came to an agreement that they would not negotiate during the season. He didn't want that to be a sort of a distraction. So, so it's possible they haven't really had any any concrete conversations for quite some time based on that agreement. But again, as I said, both sides in this, the agent, uh, the representation and the team have already been thinking about how they're going to approach it. So, so when they do start those conversations, um, it's not going to be, you know, one of those things about, Hey, so what are we thinking? They already know what they're thinking. Like they, they have already gone through that. So to your question, how soon I think they would be wise to try to get it done. And, and if you can't, then in the 11th hour, then 
you make the move with the franchise tag. That's how I see that playing out, just because I think there's good faith on both sides. But there's also the, the other reality here, which is Pittman being on record saying, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing what, what free agency looks like for me. And, you know, is that a negotiating ploy or is that a true statement where he really, truly wants to test the market? I, I guess we'll find out. ESPN Stephen Holder is our guest. Stephen, we were reading a lot of tea leaves, as were you, as were many, with Chris Ballard's end-of-season press conference after the loss to the Texans. And the most notable quote, Jake brought it up a couple times, was his pause when referencing Alec Pierce. Regardless of what that says about Pierce or not, it would be clear that they're in some way open to the idea that many have called for, myself included, adding weapons for Anthony Richardson to make his de facto rookie season easier. As we stand on the onset of... The countdown still continuing to free agency and the tag deadline I brought up. What is more likely an approach for them to take? Go take a swing on an additional piece in free agency at the wide receiver position or do it with a premium draft pick this year? Well, I, I think it depends on how the board stacks up. I know this is a cop-out answer, but but I don't totally know yet because you know we're still in, in the season. But well, here's what I'd say. If the board stacks up as such that it's starting to look, by the way, like there are some premium wide receivers um, in that, you know, top half of the first round and, and the Colts are right in the middle. So if that's the case, it seems like there's a, I don't know what the number is, but like maybe a, a group of four or five wide receivers that are candidates to go um, in that top half of the first round. That's a pretty good number. And, and so it seems to me that's a very deep position where you can get a, a very good player without taking the first guy at that position, you know, maybe even the second or third guy. And so that tells me even at number 15, you're going to get, you know, if you looked at the wide receivers, there's a good chance you will get a very premium wide receiver. Even at that point, you don't necessarily have to be in the top five. Um, might be less so with the pass rushers, though. You know, it, this is again the, the way the way the draft prognostications look right now are never going to be the same as they look in in March or April. So don't hold me to anything we're saying now, but just based on what we have, uh, just based on the information we know right now, it, it seems like possibly the value is in the wide receivers with that first pick. That being said, I have always felt like. The I, I talked to um, someone about this. Maybe, maybe Jane V and I were talking about this. I, I just think that the ability to or the, the the trying to get a premium pass rusher in anything outside of the first round of the NFL draft is incredibly difficult. Incredibly difficult. I think you have. I don't know. I can't prove this, and I'd have to run some numbers. But my gut tells me that you have, a, you have better odds of finding a high-end wide receiver outside of that range than you do a high-end edge rusher. You know, that's just where they tend to go. So, so I think for the Colts, I mean, I like their pass rush, and their pass rush was very good, you know, all things considered. But, you know, if you're looking for a true freak pass rusher, um, you tend to have to get them there in that top half of the first round. Stephen Holder's our guest. Stephen, you had mentioned that you were working on your computer when you needed a break in order to listen to this fine program. So the question begs to be asked, uh, you're working on what? 
Oh, I've got some unrelated stuff to the Colts, stuff unrelated to the Colts. I, I got some, a couple of Pro Bowl things I'm working on. Um, I, I get to go to Orlando and get out of the cold next week to cover the Pro Bowl. I, I never thought I'd get on a plane to go cover a flag football game, but here we are. Um, but I'm not complaining. <laughs> it's just fine. Uh, so I've got some pieces related to that. Um, I actually also have another piece that I'm working on that I'm actually kind of interested in. It's it's not for everybody, but um, it, it's a piece about how players handle concussion symptoms. So I don't know when this is going to run. I probably shouldn't even be talking about it. They'll get mad at me. But, you know, what I've learned, like we saw this with Anthony Richardson this year, you know, he, he had that concussion against Houston and no, it wasn't diagnosed. It was Anthony saying to the team, you know, something's not right. And, and Ryan Kelly had this happen a couple of times this year. So what we're learning now is this is a league wide thing. What we're learning is that more and more players are the ones having to step up and say, Hey, I'm not right. Now that is not, that is not uh, an indication that, that, that the NFL is not doing its job. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is, and, and this is something that the league officials agree with, they can't diagnose every concussion just by outward symptoms. You just can't. So, so the player has to be able to say, okay, you know what? The consequences here might be that I might miss a game or two, but I have to be mature enough to say that I'm not right. And, and for my family's sake and for my own future's sake, I have to get out of this game. So I think it's a really interesting topic because not everybody, you know, has not everybody has the same comfort level in terms of where they are in their career or where they are uh, in their standing with the team. So there's a lot of wheels turning, you know, when you've got to say, hey, I, I might have to leave this game. So anyway, kind of a meaty topic, but that's the, the genesis of it. Who's going to coach Atlanta next year? Huh. I'm really interested to see how that turns out. I mean, because they just apparently requested more interviews for a couple of different player people, right? And they've had yeah. Belichick in twice, right? I mean, this is this is total speculation, right? But but if, don't you think with Bill Belichick, you've got a lot to talk about? Like, it's not just okay. Does he want the job? But although that's a big part of the conversation, but there's also the conversation about okay, like. Who's gonna Who's gonna have say over this or that, and uh, you know all these kinds of things? And I mean, do you you want to hire Bill Belichick and then find out that he doesn't want any of your players, or he doesn't want any? Um, he doesn't He doesn't like your quarterback, or he doesn't like this. And then you know, I mean, are you just gonna tell him no on all those things? No, I mean, you hired Bill Belichick, you're gonna have to kind of let him do what he wants to do. I think there's a lot to work through if you hire Bill Belichick. I'm not saying you shouldn't hire him. I'm just saying. It's it's an interesting and a layered conversation. It has layers to it. You know, I, I don't know. I'm I'm kind of curious to hear how this all plays out. I, I don't know who's going to coach him next year. To to answer your question, I have no a tinfoil hat on it, Stephen. <laughs> Again, the best part about tinfoil hat, I don't need to prove it. This is just reckless speculation of my thoughts on them bringing in for a second interview and why they haven't made the hire yet. I believe ownership wants Bill Belichick. I think that. The front office realizes if they hire him, their jobs become meaningless because he's going to want to make all the decisions. <laughs> and so they're trying to know we got to bring in more people here and more people there instead of making the hire for Bill Belichick. Even though I do agree with you on the fact that uh, if there's not a quarterback in place there, how is it different than what happened in New England at the end? 
Yeah, I mean, you're you're kind of you're kind of on the same page I am. I think just in terms of it, it's it's kind of complicated. Hiring Bill Belichick is not a cut and dried thing. It, it, it's exactly right. You're exactly right about you know who's it? Terry Fontenot, I think, is their GM. Um, you know, <laughs> he's probably sitting back thinking, "All right, Mr. Blank, uh, what does this mean for me?" <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I would be too. Now that being said, Belichick, the GM got Belichick, the coach, in a lot of trouble in recent years. And that is something you also have to square. That, that complicates this even more. Their draft picks have been awful, okay, awful. I'm not saying they're all a product of, of Bill Belichick's decisions, but in large part, they are in many cases. So I, I don't know. You have to square all of that. Defensive mastermind, greatest coach in history, all that's true. But I don't know, man. It's it's a complicated scenario to me. Okay, here we go, Stephen. You ready for the Jake Query prediction cycle here? Let's do it. I, I don't know who's going to end up in Atlanta. That I think Atlanta is a, a curious situation because they don't have a quarterback. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, and that I just Their think they're a lot. Of, by the way, is not bad. I, I, I don't. I, 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 I like their team. I would agree with that. And but I just I feel like there are a lot of coaches that would like to go somewhere that has some answer at long term in the quarterback position, especially 100%. especially Belichick, right? I mean, he's going to go and be like, look, I don't want to start over totally. So here we go. Uh, L.A. Chargers is going to be Jim Harbaugh, right? Looks like, sounds like, yeah. Okay. Um, what other jobs are open here? You got Atlanta. Uh, what's the other one? Uh, I, I think Tennessee is making like Callahan. It sounds like they're close, or if it's not done already. Okay, here, here's um, my Seattle. I'm I'm going with this. I'm I'm I have nothing to base this on, Stephen. I just like to throw stuff out there, and then if it comes to fruition, I really brag about it. And if it doesn't, everybody just forgets. Uh, Mike Vrabel to Seattle. You know that I could see it. I could see it. I could, you know, frankly, he's got a little bit in common with Pete Carroll. Pete Carroll has gotten a, a fair amount out of that team the last couple of years, uh, where they're a team that that kind of needs some reworking and and needs some upgrades. They still kind of managed to get a lot out of them. Well, that's all Mike Vrabel ever did in Tennessee. <laughs> I mean, did he ever have a roster you look at and say, you know, that team right there? I tell you, they could win it all. No one ever said that about the Titans. And then at the end, they're always they're always in the playoffs. They're always winning the division. So I don't know. It, it's I could see that. Do you think some of the look? I like Nick Sirianni, Stephen Holder, our guest from ESPN.com. I like Nick Sirianni a, a great deal. I mean, I don't know him yeah. the way that you do, but in the times that I've met him, he seems like a pretty good dude, and I think he's a good coach. But yeah. he also lost two coordinators, and all of a sudden the wheels fell off. Did that start to illuminate a little bit some areas where Nick Sirianni might have had a little bit of an inflated confidence? Well, it it certainly undermines you a little bit, and it makes you have to go into a little bit of prove-it mode. You know what I'm saying? Like if he comes back next year and, and he can't get that thing headed in the right direction, it's almost like – Man, you know, it, it, everything kind of gets laid bare a little bit. You know, people are going to think you're kind of a fraud. And and I say that as someone who loves Nick. And I know Nick very well. Um, I, I said this in a, in a couple of other interviews. I, I think Nick is the kind of guy who was perfect for that team when he got hired. 
And so they were a team that was, you know, that was not really, they didn't really have an identity at the time, but he kind of brought, he kind of came in and gave them like an edge uh, and an identity. And, you know, so he, he has that sort of edge to him and his team, I think took that on for sure. The problem is that plays well when you're winning, when you're losing, you can't get up there and talk a bunch of smack. Doesn't you can't get up there Monday morning team inter, team uh, meeting and say, guys, we just lost by three touchdowns. But you know what? We're the damn Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> okay, yeah. So what? <laughs> you know. And I I think that is kind of his mo. And I don't know if you can go to that. You know, when when it's not going well, uh, you kind of need a little different message sometimes. So. It's tricky. It is tricky, and and that's why, not in this case yet, but that's why sometimes we talk about coaches' messages getting stale and and running their course. It's because situations change, and so sometimes the message doesn't necessarily connect anymore because the situation has changed. That's just my theory. Uh, there are coaches who can who can adapt and, and, and work well under all circumstances, but that's not true of everybody. ESPN Stephen Holder is our guest. Stephen, Chiefs-Bills this past weekend. Travis Kelsey scores a touchdown. They go to commercial. They pan to Jason Kelsey, shirtless, in the suite, <laughs> going nuts. You quote tweet, I can't wait to retire if this is what it looks like, which I was like, yeah, I mean, that's that's the life, right? But then you follow it up with another tweet, Promise to keep my shirt on, though. So what exactly of that are you excited about retirement for? Well, it's more, the, it's more the idea, okay? Follow me here. It's the idea of not having to give a damn what anybody thinks, <laughs> including, and most of all, your employer. I will tell you, I have to care a lot about what my employer thinks <laughs> because you don't want ESPN bosses calling you. What if I had a life where... I didn't have to give one iota what those people thought. That would be pretty cool. But we're not there yet, so I digress. <laughs> Listen, my like I, I don't want for like my place of employment to hear this and retire me early. I, I've had a couple <laughs> that have tried to do that. But right. I don't know about you, Steven. Like I, I get the feeling that when I retire, like I might be shirtless pounding beers, but it's gonna be somewhere where there's like maybe a total of eight people in a twenty square mile area, right? <laughs> That's fair. That is fair. Yeah, I'm not that much of an extrovert. See, here's here's to do my it in thing, front Steve. of eighty thousand people. My, my thing is this. I keep saying to myself that my retirement's gonna be twenty acres in Wyoming, right? Twenty acres, okay. eight rescue dogs, um, and then you know, a, a TV with cable television for Shannon that does not get Bravo Network, so I don't have to watch the Real Housewives crap ever again. This is a modern spin on Yellowstone. What are we doing here? Pretty much, okay, yeah. The right, only okay. problem is then I think about the fact that, like, if I if I have yet another heart attack and I'm in the middle of Wyoming, that is no bueno, right? <laughs> right. That's, right. That's the one thing that keeps coming to mind is like, well, they airlifted me three and a half hours to a regional hospital. You know, that's not good, right. <laughs> Is there a level one trauma center in the state of Wyoming? <laughs> Is there one? Let somebody get on that. <laughs> have you, Stephen? Have you been to Wyoming? Let me ask you that. 
I have not. It's 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 one of the few I have left. I mean, yeah, I love it, love it, right? But my buddies and I drove through there one time, and we're like, so we're driving on this road trip, and we're like, you know, it's six hours in the middle. We're like, oh, we'll we'll stop and have dinner in Sheridan, Wyoming, because we'd heard of Sheridan, Wyoming. Like, it's got to be cool restaurants. We got there. There was like a Taco Bell and a Subway. It was like the size of Martinsville, right? <laughs> right. And, and and actually, about as diverse. Um, all right. Well, Stephen, appreciate the time, and we will. Continue to watch your coverage of the Colts in the offseason. What's a busy offseason for the Colts, of course, in the NFL as well at ESPN.com. Appreciate the time as always. Okay, heading out to make my travel plans to Wyoming. See there you go. I'm telling you. Laramie, though, man. I love me some Laramie, Wyoming, University of Wyoming. I like the, the whole state of Wyoming. It's great.